Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. So welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the the Heritage Foundation. My name is Kim Holmes. I'm the executive vice president at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, A warm welcome to all of you. A warm welcome also uh, to Arthur Brooks, who is here today to talk about his new book, Love Your Enemies. Now, uh, most of you probably know Arthur. Arthur Brooks is a very smart man. He is also a man with a very big heart. And that gives him an advantage a lot of Americans don't have these days. It gives him uh, an advantage of perspective. It gives him an advantage of patience. And also it gives him the ability to look at the person on another side of an argument and to see an actual person there and not just a talking head or some kind of a vehicle for channeling ideologies or even in some cases contempt. Now, we at Heritage think America needs more of this kind of perspective, this kind of patience with our fellow Americans. Heritage's president, Kay James, once said, and I'll quote her, instead of ugly rancor, we should show respect. Instead of closed minds, we should have open hearts. And when called on to do so, we need to demonstrate our own quiet courage. Now, I think Arthur Brooks would agree with Mrs. James It's about more than being just civil or tolerant, as you argue in your book, I think, very persuasively. And it's certainly not about splitting differences or on principle or even really making compromises. It's actually about respecting our fellow Americans first as human beings and then to work from there to make our case. Now, sometimes we will agree. Sometimes we will not. In fact, I personally believe that there is a huge advantage to disagreement. It allows us to avoid what could otherwise be called a dangerous consensus. As anyone who knows history, one of the most dangerous things on earth is a group of very powerful people who agree on everything and then lord over those who don't agree with them. So disagreement actually guarantees freedom. But as Arthur shows in his book, so does mutual respect. You can't have a free society where every disagreement is a power struggle, a fight over who gets to decide rather than what is being decided. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that insight, and we are deeply thankful to Arthur for it. As everyone knows, Arthur Brooks is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and AEI is certainly a great institution. It's actually been around longer than the Heritage Foundation. And we often work with, uh, with Arthur and our other colleagues at AEI I am personally grateful to Arthur for writing an endorsement of my 2012 book, Rebound, which also had a a foreword written by another AEI colleague, the great Michael Novak. 
Arthur is a stellar intellectual leader of the conservative movement. He's the author of 11 books, including the bestseller, The Conservative Heart, where he laid out uh, first some of the ideas that he is now developing in his current book. But above, above all, I think Arthur Brooks is a decent man. Now, if that sounds condescending to you, I think you may be missing the point. There was a time in this country where that was one of the highest compliments that you could actually pay a man, and that is exactly the way it is intended. Others recognize this as well. There are not many presidents of think tanks who appear in op-ed bylines with the Dalai Lama. It is very important that we have principal voices like Arthur's not only laying out the case for conservatism, but doing so while fighting, as he calls it, the culture of contempt. All conservatives believe in the marketplace of ideas, but it truly needs to be a marketplace where people get to choose. And it's not a dark, dismal, or dangerous battlefield where people come to destroy each other. So, Arthur, welcome. We look forward to your remarks and to the discussion that follows. And uh, now I will turn it over to my colleague, David Burton, who will say a few more, I hopefully, kind words about Arthur. <laughs> and then also, at that point, invite him up to say a few words. So welcome, all of you, and Arthur, welcome. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. I would ask everyone to silence your cell phones. Uh, so that we don't have an inopportune interruption. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Arthur C. Brooks. Dr. Brooks is the president of the American Enterprise Institute and has been since 2009. Uh, he is, however, going to be stepping down effective June 30th of this year. And I thought I would read a quote from his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal explaining why. Social enterprises generally thrive best when chief executives don't stay much longer than a decade because it's important to refresh the organizational vision periodically and avoid becoming uniquely associated with one person. I have seen ample evidence at other nonprofits to support this proposition, and I'm not willing to see if AI can be an outlier. Dr. Brooks is here today to talk about his new book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. He was a professional musician in the United States and in Spain for 12 years uh, during the 1980s and the early 1990s, playing the French horn. He was a professor of French horn at the Herod Conservatory of Music at Lynn University. I have a weakness for the French horn since my daughter plays the French horn with the Fairfax Wind Symphony. Oh. After three years as the Assistant Professor of Public Administration and Economics at Georgia State University, he became a professor at Syracuse University, where he was from 2001 to 2008. He taught economics and social entrepreneurship. During this period, he was also a consultant with the Rand Corporation. He's a prolific author, having written countless articles. He also has, by my count, written nine books and co-authored three. I'll mention four. Uh, Dr. Holmes mentioned The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fair, Happier, and More Prosperous America in 2015. The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise in 2012. Wealth and Justice, The Morality of Democratic Capitalism in 2010. And Social Entrepreneurship, A Modern Approach to Social Value Creation in 2008. 
They're clearly, clearly written and well worth reading. He earned his PhD and master's in policy analysis at the Rand Graduate School, an MA in economics from Florida Atlantic University, and his BA in economics from Thomas Edison State College. Dr. Brooks is an advocate for reason and civil debate. This is about more than just aesthetics, good manners, or comfort. Being able to vigorously debate, compromise, achieve victory, or suffer legislative or electoral defeat, and yet remain a willing partner in the shared enterprise of self-government is what a healthy and successful democratic society is all about. Political tribalism and endless insulting factory and TV soundbites or blog posts are not the route to a flourishing republic. I'm looking forward very much to hearing his thoughts about how to improve our current situation. After Dr. Brooks' presentation, we'll have time for some questions from the audience. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brooks. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. What an honor it is to be here. Uh, at the Heritage Foundation, our, 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 our brothers and sisters across town at AEI, we've been working closely with the Heritage Foundation for many years, um, cer certainly since the founding of Heritage in the early 1970s. Uh, this has particular significance for me as I near the end of my time as president of AEI. Why? Because it was in this auditorium that I gave my first speech ever in Washington, D.C., before I ever was at the American Enterprise Institute. On the, on the contrary, I was still a professor at Syracuse University. I'd just written a book about charitable giving that had weirdly gotten an audience for the first time in my life. <clears throat> I, was, I received an invitation from a famous think tank in D.C., the Heritage Foundation, and I came down and on this very stage, uh, in this very room, gave the first Washington address on a book I'd ever given. How appropriate it is that two months before I leave, I would be back up here again. Thank you for giving me some of your time. Uh, those of you uh, who are involved with Heritage, which is practically all of you, and those of you who are watching on the live stream, uh, there's a lot that I'm going to talk about today that is going to be familiar to you. Uh, but I've been on book tour for the past three weeks since the book came out in March on March 12th, Love Your Enemies. And one of the things that I get for most general audiences, particularly at universities, uh, secular universities, is that people will say, that's a clever title. Yeah. <laughs> um, you understand that this is nothing clever about this title. There's nothing even particularly original about this title. However, I think that the use of uh, the fifth chapter of Matthew, the 44th verse, is particularly appropriate in our current political times, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, I've been in the middle of the, of the policy and political fray for the past 10 and a half years since I've been president of AEI, and I don't like it. And I bet most of you don't like it either. 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country, which is not to say that 93% of Americans want to agree. Kim Holmes was right on the money when he said that agreement is a kind of mediocrity and is kind of dangerous. Disagreement is what we call at AEI the competition of ideas, which is fundamental to a free society. There's nothing that brings about more excellence than competition. Whether it's in politics, we call that democracy. Or in economics, we call that capitalism. Or in the world of ideas, which is what we need. That's why we need the Heritage Foundation. That's why we need AEI. And by the way, that's why we need people competing against us and who disagree with us. That's great. That's not a problem. Not a problem at all. The problem is not that we disagree too much. It's that we disagree very poorly. And that's why I've written this book, Love Your Enemies. Now, I had an inflecting experience where this book project got kicked off. Um, I, for a living, 
as a think tank president, there I have my job involves very little thinking in tanks. <clears throat> I'm mostly traveling around talking to smart people. I do 175 speeches a year, and my job is to raise about 50 million dollars a year with my colleagues. So my job is basically uh, running for the Senate and never getting elected. <laughs> Uh, and, and I speak to all different audiences. I mean, I speak to very progressive audiences on college campuses and middle-of-the-road groups that are non-political, chambers of commerce, and, and, and very conservative audiences as well, sometimes even activists. I love talking to everybody. I'm open to every opportunity to talk about the ideas that I care about, about how democratic capitalism reaches the margins of society, is our gift to the world, lifts up the poor, that's what I care about. That's why I'm in the movement. And I want to talk about it all day long. Well, it was in this last category, <clears throat> conservative activists, that I found myself in an event in 2014 in New Hampshire. And I had an inflecting experience that helped me understand the problem that America was facing with our inability to disagree in a productive way. I was... Uh, it was, a, it, was a, it was a funny event. It was six, 700 conservative activists in the early stages of the 2016 presidential election. And, and I looked at the program when I got there, and I realized I was the only person on the program not running for president. There were 15 speakers, and I was the only one who was obviously not a candidate. I mean, it should be obvious to everybody. I mean, the idea that I would run for president is absurd, and that anybody would vote for me is even more absurd. And so I thought to myself, how did I get on this program? And the reason I was going to be the odd man out for sure is because, look, I'm not a, politics is not my thing. Politics is like the weather. And I'm not a weatherman. I'm a climate scientist. <laughs> Ideas are like the climate. You know, the Heritage Foundation is about climate, not weather. So is AEI. And, and all of the other speakers, God bless them, they were weathermen. They wanted to talk about politics. So I thought, boy, I'm really the odd man out here. Then I thought to myself, there's a reason for this. I'm here to do something that's going to improve this situation. Because I knew what was about to happen. I was 45 minutes early, and sure enough, 15-minute speeches back-to-back. You know how these events go. And each one of the politicians that I heard did the same thing, which is what people who want to get elected president of the United States always do. You get in front of the most sympathetic audience you possibly can, and you give them two messages. Message number one, you're right. Message number one, the people who aren't here are stupid and evil. That's what they do. And look, politics is a tough business. Easy for me to say. But I thought, this is exactly what I don't like, and this is exactly what I'm going to rebel against right now. So I got up in the middle of my speech, which was about economic policy, something I talk about a lot, like David. And... Uh, <laughs> And I stopped in the middle of my talk, and I said, look, I'm, I'm telling you things. I've gotten a couple of applause lines here, and I've told you things that you're very sympathetic to. Because I'm a conservative, and so are you. But I want you to remember something very important. The people who are not here, political progressives, are not here because they don't feel welcome, and they don't agree with us. I want you to remember that they're not stupid, and they're not evil. They're simply Americans who disagree with us on public policy. And our job is to persuade them with love. It was not an applause line. <laughs> but there was an applause line that came shortly after. A lady said, I think they're stupid and evil. <laughs> applause! <laughs> not for me. And I thought to myself, you know, and by the way, I was not offended. She was not trying to hurt my feelings. She was not trying to repudiate me. She was making a joke. 
right? A pretty common one of that. And, and here's the epiphany that I got at that moment. See, I was looking for a way. I was trying to get my mind around the dynamics, the unproductive dynamics of the American political milieu, the direction that we were going that was all wrong, that in point of fact did obtain over the next couple of years. And I got it at that moment. See, my mind at that moment went to Seattle. Why? Because it's my hometown. Seattle, as most of you know, is the most left-wing city in America. My mother was an artist. And my father was a college professor. What do you think their politics were? <laughs> I'm the black sheep. I'm the odd man out. And let me tell you something about my parents. They weren't stupid and evil. They were phenomenal parents who instilled a sense of interest and wonder, a value for education and good values and my religious beliefs. And they wanted me to think for myself, which I do, and which was very inconvenient to them. <laughs> And when that lady said that in New Hampshire, she was joking, but that lady was insulting my mom. And I had that on my heart for a whole day. And, you know, I went to my next location. I don't remember where I went next, but I was giving a speech someplace else the next night. And I was thinking about it. I couldn't get it out of my head. And I said, I, I asked the audience the next night just to kind of clear up this thing. I asked the audience, and I'm going to ask you right now, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically. And let's round it to 100%. <laughs> if you didn't have your hand up, it's because you were, you know, looking at your phone or something. Thank God. Thank God we live in a country where that's true, where we can disagree with somebody and love them, and where we can disagree and it's okay, where we can disagree and there's no knock in the night and no jackbooted thug. But here's the problem. Too often today, we're being told by people, usually very powerful people or people who have a platform, that unless we repudiate those people that we love or trash those people that we love, that we're not standing up for our values. That is hugely problematic. My father used to tell me that the mark of moral courage is not standing up to the people with whom you disagree. That's a good thing to do. We do that at AEI. You do that at the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. Stand up to the people with whom you disagree. But that's not a mark of moral courage at all. The mark of moral courage is standing up to the people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. Are you strong enough to do that? When was the last time you did it? When was the last time that a leader in America did that? Hasn't happened in a while. And that, my friends, is the problem. Groupthink sets in when moral courage is in decline. Since the 2016 presidential election, one in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or a close friend because of politics. That is catastrophic. Why? Because that's a problem of love. That's not a problem of, of you know, disagreement. That's not a problem of ideology. That's not a problem of politics. That's a love crisis. You all know that love is the basis on which we can make progress. It is the nuclear fuel of happiness and to walk away from a family member because in the, in the freest, most progressive nation in the history of the world, to walk away from a family member or a close friend because of politics is, as they say in baseball, an unforced error. It doesn't have to happen. Okay, so here's my goal. Fix it. Every book that I've written until this one, To Love Your Enemies, has been a book about institutions. You know, because I talk about politics and policy and leadership and the economy. It's all about institutions, right? 
And at first I thought, there's gotta be an institutional fix to this. The leaders we need, you know, something like that. That's not right. Because actually, if you have a problem with love, you better not look to institutions. That's exactly the problem in countries that have become bureaucratized and collectivized and socialized. That they look to institutions for love. You got a love problem? If you know in your heart that the problem is in your heart, you got to work on yourself. This is the first book I've ever written that's personal, that's, in, that's individual. I want a revolution in each person's heart. And here's my proposition to you. You know that nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. And yet, that's what we're trying to do politically today, isn't it? So therefore, we're not persuasive. You might realize that we're not making very many converts ideologically. We're locking down. We're in a standoff in the American ideological wars. The left, the right, nobody's converting anybody else. We are not persuasive. I want to be more persuasive, number one. Number two, I want to be happier. If you look at the data since 2006, when a lot of these things really started to manifest, you'll find that the percentage of Americans who say they are thriving has gone from 62% to 50%. At the same time, the GDP per capita has gone up almost every year. You know that there's no policy and institutional fix to this. You know that that's a love problem. You know it in your hearts. And if you're going to solve that, it's got to start with you. People are less happy, they're more lonely, they're more depressed, and they're more anxious than they've been since we've been keeping records. What is it all about? Well, I could talk about the internet, I could talk about social media, but you know perfectly that this has to do with the fact that, that communities are being ripped apart. So I want to be more persuasive. I want to be happier. I want you to be happier, and I want more unity in this country. Not more agreement. I just want us to remember that this great country must have some morally unifying characteristics. By the way, why? Why? Why do I want that unity? Because the world needs it. In the past 50 years, 2 billion of our brothers and sisters have been pulled out of poverty. You want to know why? Because of the United States of America, that's why. Because of globalization and free trade and property rights and the rule of law and the culture of entrepreneurship and the American military. That is what's kept the world safe. That's what brought the world together. That's what's lifted people up. And if we are not unified, it's inconvenient and unhappiness provoking for us. It is deadly for our brothers and sisters at the margins of societies all around the world. We cannot permit this. This has to stop right here hmm. at the Heritage Foundation. So let's do that. How? How? How can we be happier? How can we be more persuasive? How can we lift people up? Let's first start by, by, by diagnosing the little problem that we have on our hands. What, what is actually bringing us to this point? People will often say that we have a, too much uh, incivility, right? We're too uncivil to each other. That's, that's garbage. Want to know why? Because civility is a garbage standard. If I told you that my wife Esther and I that we're civil to each other, <laughs> you'd say that we need counseling. If I told you that, you know, my, 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 my 280 employees at the American Enterprise Institute, that they tolerate me, <laughs> you'd say I have a morale problem on my hands. Those are low standards. You know perfectly that those aren't the problems that we have on our hands. You know perfectly that we have a love problem on our hands. So, so 
So what's militating against love? Sometimes people will say there's a lot of anger in politics. Anger, people are screaming at each other. You know, this is, anger's not a problem either. Anger is completely compatible with love. It's a hot emotion that says, I care what you think. Very interestingly, social psych- the social psychologists who study uh, marital dynamics have shown clearly that there is no correlation between anger and separation and divorce. No correlation. You know the secret to the success of my 28-year marriage? I'm married to a Spaniard. That's not it. It's the lack of correlation between anger and divorce. That's my secret. The problem is not anger in America. The problem is when you take anger and you mix in disgust, which is a different emotion. It is a cold emotion. It takes anger and turns it into something that we call contempt. Contempt, according to Schopenhauer, the great 19th century philosopher, is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another human being. When you express contempt towards somebody or his or her ideas, you, my friend, will have a permanent enemy and there is no other way. When somebody expresses contempt toward you, you never forget it. Now, we have a million ways of ascertaining contempt. A psychologist one time told me that most human conflict is due to improperly concealed contempt. And yet, that's the modus operandi of American politics today, isn't it? I have a a guy that I do work with. He's been on my podcast. He's a social psychologist named John Gottman. He's the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. This guy's a hero. Why? Because he's brought thousands of couples back from, from the brink of divorce, back into happy marriages. And that, for me, that's a hero. Everybody in this room knows that the basis of a stable, good society is healthy, happy families. And the basis of a healthy, happy family is mom and dad in love. And if I can get mom and dad not to get divorced and to come back into love, you're my hero and you're a patriot. That simple. John Gottman is that guy. And in his laboratory, the Gottman Marriage Laboratory, he has this thing where he can counsel a couple one time that's quarreling, never met him before, and predict with 94% accuracy if they will be divorced within three years. So what's he looking for? You want to know. <laughs> we all want to know. Eye-rolling. Eye-rolling, the ultimate sign of contempt, sarcasm, derision, dismissal, to say, it's not that I want you to change what you think. I don't care what you think, because what you think is worthless, which is to say, you are worthless. Imagine saying that to the person you love the most. So I said to John Gottman, that's the biggest predictor of divorces. That's it. I said, why do people do that? Why do people who love each other the most wind up hating each other in that way. He says, this is the irony. They don't. They've just gotten into a habit of talking with contempt, which is the ultimate form of rhetorical abuse. You can tell people that you love, that you hate them, and they will believe you, and you'll be divorced. You'll get, you'll have an enemy. You'll have a, a bitter foe. You'll be separated. You'll ruin love. I said, a, a habit. You know, he says, and so what, what's his, I said, how do you fix that? I mean, what's your trick, man? And he said, you break the habit. You break the habit. How do you break a habit? I'm going to give you one second of of, of, uh, neuroscience. Um, There's a large literature on habits and how to break habits. We have lots of habits in our lives. Some of them are chemical, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, whatever. Some of them are pretty innocuous, like drinking coffee, and some of them are really bad, like drugs and alcohol. There are other habits that we have, too, of behaviors. And here's what what all habits have in common. They're processed by the part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. 
That's a part of your brain at the very center, deep part, evolved more than a million years ago. It's about the size of the end of your pinky finger. And, and it, it, it's much older in human evolutionary terms than the medial prefrontal cortex, the, part of your, the meaty part of your brain behind your forehead that governs your conscious actions. The nucleus accumbens, it governs rewards. You do something, feels good, get a little dopamine, you like it, you will reinforce it and do it again automatically. And the more you do it, the less conscious it'll be, and you'll do it again and again and again. Now, that's a habit, and it might be good, like, you know, making your bed, but it might be bad, like treating your wife or husband with contempt when you didn't even realize it. You hear something you disagree with, you roll your eyes. That's abuse, and that's abuse based on a habit. you got to break that habit. How do you do it? Not with willpower. Maybe you're a smoker. I used to be a smoker, right? And I didn't want to smoke. I mean, I let my, I lit my bed on fire one time. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it was filthy. It was expensive. It made my mother sad. It had to stop, right? So I tried willpower. Like, I won't smoke. I won't smoke. I won't. I, I will smoke. <laughs> How do you break a habit? And the answer is by reprogramming the nucleus accumbens. Every time you're stimulated, you have to be conscious of the stimulus and substitute something for the old habit. It's, it's pretty simple, and yet you can't do it any other way. There is no other way to break a habit. So every time you feel like smoking, every time you feel like smoking, have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you have a contempt habit, and you're in a marriage that's being destroyed by your contempt habit, John Gottman says every time you feel like expressing contempt, which, by the way, is almost always because you have been treated with contempt, you stop, you recognize the stimulus, and you put something else in its place. And I said, well, John, is it that simple? Is it that simple for American politics? And he said, yes, I, I think it is. He's a, he's a patriotic guy. He hates what's happened to America. And he sees parallels between dysfunctional marriages and, and, and a political form of discourse in our country that's totally out of control. American against American, where we should love each other, we should respect each other, while we disagree, has turned into a dysfunctional marriage where we practically feel like we're on the brink of divorce. Okay. So what do you do? You have to put something else in place. Now, when I talk about contempt, I'm not talking about some guy on TV expressing contempt. I'm talking about you. I'm also talking about me. Because I'm guilty I wish it weren't true, but I stand in front of you as a sinner. I saw myself on CNN. I was debating some lady. <laughs> something, you know, the minimum wage or something. You know, my, my, my views are predictable on all these things because they're your views. And, um, and, and the lady said something I disagreed with, and I rolled my eyes because it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> and... Uh, I didn't have any, I didn't feel contempt for that lady. I did not. I did not. But I can guarantee you that when she went home that night, she was not saying, you know, I I met this guy who's the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and he was making some very good points. I guarantee she said, what a jerk. And next time she saw me on TV, she said, there's that jerk. I made a permanent enemy. And I'm sorry about that. And I'm not going to do it anymore. And it didn't have to happen. I'm, look, I'm guilty. So are you. Why? Because we have this habit. Our nucleus accumbens is giving us this tiny little dopamine reward. 93% of us, I told you this before, have come to hate how divided we become as a country. Hold on there. 
93% of us hate how divided we become. That means 7% don't hate how divided we become. For them, it's not a habit. For them, contempt is a way of life. That's the outrage industrial complex that's running this whole show. That's the people who are in the rhetorical cockpit of the dysfunctional American political culture today. That's the outrageous uh, talk show hosts on the cable channels. That is the politicians who are divisive and polarizing. We're talking about the, the college campuses that are trying to fire up students and tell them to hate people with whom they disagree this is the entertainment industry that's vilifying people who have a, a, a philosophy like many of you in this room. This is right and left. That outraged industrial complex is ripping our country apart. For the rest of us, they've given us a habit. They just gave us a bad habit. So you're going to break it. What are you going to do to break your habit? I was in search of the answer to that as I was writing this book. And that led me to a figure that you've already heard about from Kim which is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. See, I've been working with the Dalai Lama for seven years now. Uh, we've written together uh, in the New York Times and the Washington Post. We've done a lot of programs together. He's become a dear friend and mentor of mine. And I asked him, we were making a movie called The Pursuit, which is it's in showings all over the country right now. And it'll go to film festivals and onto these digital platforms. It's a phenomenal experience doing the first documentary film I've ever made. And we were filming it, part of it, in the Himalayas, in the Himalayan foothills in Dharamsala, where he lives. And between takes with the Dalai Lama, I said, Your Holiness, what should I do when I feel contempt? Because I want to know. I know the substitution. What do I need? And he said, show warm-heartedness. And I thought, you got anything else? Because <laughs> that sounds kind of weak. But then I thought about it. Some of you know a thing or two about the Dalai Lama, who is considered to be the world's most respected religious figure. But beyond that is a courageous person who has suffered a lot. Uh, he's turning 84, July 6th. 60 years ago, when he was 24 years old, he was exiled as the leader of the Tibetan people. He was rolled over in Tibet by, the, by naked communist Chinese aggression. He was kicked out of his country. And he led his, the leadership of his people into, into exile. For the next 60 years, he has been in exile until today, and still is. Now, it's an interesting thing. I mean, this has always happened. It's not like it's anything new about naked military aggression in pursuit of resources and to, to, to dominate a religious minority. It's happened forever. Here's the weird part. I'm at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., talking about the Tibetan Buddhist leader. How do I even know who he is? Because he's the world's most respected religious leader. Why? Because he was treated with contempt, and for 60 years, he has answered with warm-heartedness. He has answered hate with love. My friends, that is power, pure power. Answering hate with hate is for weak people, because that's stimulus, response. You are the slave to your feelings. No, no, be the master. Answer hate with love. Be seen as the strong. Don't agree. Agreement is not what we want. Disagree with love. That's the Dalai Lama's way. That's your way. That's our way. And that is the salvation for our system of democratic capitalist governance that we have built our institutions on. Huh. So I asked him, I said, your holiness, I'm a weak man. How do I do that? And first he said, it's an interesting thing, I said, for how, what if I don't feel warm-hearted? You know what he told me? Fake it. <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, psychological research that lies behind that. Faking it is, 
is smart because attitude indeed follows action. If you act more warm-hearted, you will feel more warm-hearted. And you should be the master, not the slave of your feelings. It's the right thing to do. But but then I said, how do I, I mean, uh, I I don't know how to make myself do this. And he said, remember, and he gave me very good advice. He said, remember a time when you were treated with contempt and you answered with warm-heartedness. And remember how it set your heart on fire, how it made you feel. Don't try to recreate a behavior. Try to recreate the feeling of your heart being on fire because of the love that you exhibited in response to hate. Remember that feeling and action will follow. So I went back to my room and I prayed about it. I said, when did this happen? And I remembered a time. And it was the same month that I stood on this stage for the first time in 2006. I had just written a book called Who Really Cares about the difference between who gives and who doesn't give to charity. Conservatives, liberals, religious people, secular people, rich people, poor people. All, and, and, and again, this was a very boring book. Don't get me wrong. It was like all of my books as an academic. It had, you know, t- graphs and tables and equations and a mathematical appendix. Ugh, yawn. But it, a weird thing happened to me. It hit the news cycle in exactly the right way. President Bush read it and invited me to the White House. I was on radio and TV every day because it just happens. The news cycle hits a book in just the right way and, and your life gets turned upside down. It started selling hundreds of copies a day. And my life changed forever. I got invited to the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> And I was in the Wall Street Journal, and I wound up being president of AEI because of that. Hmm. So I also started hearing back from, from strangers that I'd never met. Because when you write a book and it's selling a lot, people read it, and they, they read your whole book and they feel like they know you. And so they reach out to you. And it's really weird. And so I was getting hundreds of emails from total strangers. My email is very easy to get from the university website. People, I love your book, you know, here's my experience, or I hate your book. And it was in the latter category, I got an email from a guy in Dallas about three weeks after the book came out. Dear Professor Brooks, you are a right-wing fraud. (laughs) Bad beginning. But I keep reading, so I'm a good sport. And I noticed this email is 5,000 words long, it's going to take me 20 minutes to read. This guy, and it turns out, this guy is refuting every single thing in my book. Like every table, every graph, every survey, every conclusion. It's amazing. I mean, in vitriolic detail. And I'm 15 minutes into this email. I'm a slow reader. And, 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 and you know, I realized I was conscious of my emotions, which is unusual for me because I don't think about my emotions that much. But I was conscious of this one feeling. You know what I was feeling over and over again as I read every insulting line? You know what it was? He read my book. (laughs) I was filled with gratitude. Nobody ever read my books before. My family didn't read my books. Nobody read my books. I wouldn't have read them had I not written them. (laughs) And so I thought, I got nothing to lose, man. And so I write it back, and here's what I say. It's just pure serendipity. I'm no saint. Dear so-and-so, I know you hated my book, and it was terrible, and I'm a stooge. And I'm a right-winger. I got it. Everything's terrible. But it took me two years to write that book, and you read every word. I am so grateful to you because I put my whole heart into that project. Thank you. Send. (laughs) And then I go back to work, right? And I'm like cleaning up a data set or some wonky professor thing. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to hear from this guy. I mean, of course not. 
But 15 minutes later, ding, there's his email again. And now I'm very apprehensive. Like maybe he's going to threaten to kill me now or something. I don't know, right? I open it up. Here's what it says. Dear Professor Brooks, um, next time you're in Dallas, if you want to get some dinner, give me a call. What happened? What? Wh- I mean, if, enemy to friend? He didn't think he suddenly liked my book. He still hated my book. He just realized he liked me. Why? Because I anesthetized him by answering his hatred with a little bit of love, by answering his contempt with a little bit of warm-heartedness. That was pure power, and it set my heart on fire. I became more persuasive. I got happier. I unified two human beings that are both citizens of this great country, talking in freedom to each other. I even changed his heart a little bit, which is no guarantee, by the way. He could have still hated me. It still would have been the right thing to do. And I remembered that because the Dalai Lama asked me to. And my friends, that is your source of power. This is what you get to do. And here's my message for you today. You are at the Heritage Foundation. You will be treated with contempt. You're going to talk about politics. Most of you are on social media. So am I. It's not always fun. Write something political on social media. Rob Bluey still here? Yeah, man, the best. He's the best at this. You will be treated, if you write something on social media about politics, you will be treated with contempt within 20 seconds. That's your opportunity. That's a blessed opportunity because you get to be persuasive by answering hatred with love. You get to be happier by answering hatred with love. You get the opportunity to change somebody's heart a little bit and improve their life, and you get to be the beginning of a social movement that starts with you. Will it change the country overnight? Nope. Will it start this day with you? Yes. This gives you a better life. This gives you a better country, and this gives you a fighting chance of having people listen to your values and take them seriously for the very first time. That is what I'm trying to write about in this book. Now, the details are are written out using the social science and the brain science and all the stuff that scholars do, step by step by step by step. If you read it, my guarantee to you is that you'll be more effective at it. How do I know? Because it's changed my life. I'm a happier person. I'm finally being the person that I want to be. I'm going to be going into an environment now. I'm leaving AEI, and in my professional life, I don't get very much resistance at home. I mean, in my, in my, in my work home. But I'm leaving on July 1st. Uh, June 30th, my last day as president of AEI. On July 1st, I'll be a president. I mean, I will be a professor at Harvard University. My views are not mainstream views at Harvard. What am I going to do? I get to do this. I get to live this. All of us get to live this. If you're willing to do it, you're going to lift our country up. You're going to live this the, the apostolic spirit of the missionary, just not in a religious sense. Because America needs you. Our country needs you. I need you. The rest of the world needs you. So if you want to start a social movement, let's start it here. Let's start it today. Um, Let's start it at the Heritage Foundation. God bless you. time for some questions and let me also say that uh, the books are available for sale outside and I think uh, Dr. Brooks will be available to sign a few immediately after the event. Uh, I I just wanted to ask one question. Uh, I've been doing this a while and I still remember 
when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill could be political adversaries. And, uh, you know, we have rose-colored memories of those. But they were fairly knockdown, drag-out adversaries. Right. And then maybe friends and civil to each other. Or Jack Kemp could fight for truth, justice, in the American way and be a happy warrior and people and, and with people that he was uh, in deep disagreement with. Now, if Joe Biden says that uh, Vice President Pence is a decent guy, he's literally his words, decent guy, he's roundly attacked in the blogosphere. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be difficult to, to, to do what, what you propose, but operationally for uh, political leaders who are, are trying to win elections, um, what, do you have any, any any advice about how to return to sort of the the American uh, roots? Of the... Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I do talk to politicians all the time. I have a, the great uh, privilege of spending time dur- during the, the ordinary part of the year, during the meaty part of the year when Congress is in session. I get to spend an hour a month with with leaders in Congress uh, to talk about communications and to talk about these particular ideas. It's a phenomenal opportunity to talk about research and brain science and message absorption, all the stuff that I actually do all the time. And so I do talk about these things too, fundamentally not just because they're leaders, but because they're citizens. And they want these things too. You know, the most desperate people I've ever seen about this problem are the people who are participating in it and don't know how to get out. It's kind of like, you know, the, the current political environment is like being in the mafia. And you've had this big religious conversion, but you know if you get out, they're going to kill you. I mean, it's just a huge problem for these people. And my heart goes out to them because it's funny. All of us in this room know something that most people not in Washington, D.C. don't know. They think that politicians are, they're all cynical and they're all just opportunists and, you know, and, and they're, they're kind of rotten people. Look, these are our friends. They're my friends and your friends. These are patriots. Both the Democrats and the Republicans, they want to make their – not all of them are the, the best people we've ever met, perhaps. But, you know, these are some of the, some of the people that I admire the most are people who are serving in, in the House and Senate here. But they, they don't know what to do any more than we know what to do. So I've, I've written this for them. And one of the things that I often talk about is in, in political discourse is, is to remember that, that actually the stakes are lower than people often think from being a good person. I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, we get to the point where people look at their mentions on Twitter all the time. That's a big mistake. The Twitter world is actually not the real world. If you look on Twitter, Twitter is a contempt machine. And, and you would think that we're seven minutes away from a hot shooting war if you're on Twitter. And then you turn off Twitter. I mean, if some of you, or maybe you're doing a Lenten Twitter fast. If not, start today. You still have time before Easter. And, uh, and I recommend it because you will realize that this is a much better country than you thought. And we're farther away from civil war than you thought. And when politicians turn it off, they're, they're, they feel much more able to do things. They, they, they have the courage to be the, the people that they want to be because they're not being inundated with that 7% outrage industrial complex all the time. Okay, now let's say, however, they are going to get wiped out. You know, we've had... Democrats come and hang out at AEI because, you know, we're smart and we're nice. And, uh, and then they, they have people say they're going to get primaried as Democrats because they're hanging out with the right-wing American Enterprise Institute. At some point, you've got to ask yourself, not just what am I willing to do to win, but what am I not willing to do to win? What am I actually willing to lose for? And this is a good thing to lose for as far as I'm concerned. 
You know, this is a good thing because this is, I believe, we're 18 to 24 months away from cultural change where Americans are going to fight back. Our political culture today is a crummy product. It's not good and people don't like it. And people in a democratic capitalist country will not put up with a crummy product forever. We're going to get, and there's a lot of young people in this room, you're going to fight back and you're going to rebel against it. And you're going to start rebelling against bullies and outrage mongers on your side. Because they need you to fight. We need you to fight back against them. Politicians who are willing to take a little risk along these lines are politicians on the cutting edge today. They're, you know, it's those who are you know, only willing to you know, lock down their own base, to outrage people a little bit more on their own side, to turn it up to 11. That, that's old school. That's anachronistic. I think it's actually a little bit behind the times. And so one of the things that I talk to politicians about is you want to be really modern. You want to take a little risk that's actually going to potentially put you in the entrepreneurial vanguard of what the, the direction I think American politics is going to go. Be a good person. Answer anger, the, the, the outrage of the other side with a little bit of love. Stand up for it. You know, it's funny because I always get these examples. People always say, well, you know, remember in, in 2008 and, and a town hall meeting, McCain, this lady said that, that, that Barack Obama was a Muslim and John McCain took her to task for it and said, ma'am, that is not true. That is a conspiracy theory. And people always say, and see, he lost. That's not why he lost. That had nothing to do with why he lost. He lost because the Americans didn't think he was as good a candidate as Barack Obama. He lost in a fair and square Democratic election. <laughs> he didn't, I mean, that was, I, I am sure, given what I look at, when I look at the public opinion polling data, that more people admired him than people that he lost. He was already the candidate. This wasn't even a primary. There's a lot less to lose than we think. We can do this. Uh, we just have to set our minds to doing it and uh, say a little prayer and get it done. All right, let me open it to uh, audience questions. First off, uh, we have two mics in the room. Please wait for the mic and then say your name and any institutional affiliation. This gentleman here. And I know your, your book talks mostly about differences between, let's say, Republicans and Democrats, right. the issues in government, and we're in Washington, D.C. Right. But there's an, I noticed that when you go to, you said you go to Harvard, you have two schools that you're going to be, so you're going to be associated with the Kennedy School and the Business School, right. which is a very interesting combination. And could you comment more on this difference between business and government, which is a little different? Uh, it is a matter of trust. In other words, in business, you don't want an oil man in the oil in the energy department because he's going to favor something else. He's got an automatic conflict of interest. And in business, you don't you don't trust or love anybody in government because they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. It's all red tape bureaucracy. Uh, what do you, what is the gap? Is how do you relate to this gap between business and government? That's a wonderful question, Mr. Johnson. I appreciate it a lot. Um, I am going in as a professor of leadership into the Kennedy School and a senior fellow into the Harvard Business School, teaching uh, ideas of aspirational leadership. So my first course um, in fall, uh, this coming fall, will be at the Kennedy School called Conflict and Collaboration. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm going to have to figure out what my course is going to be about. Um, uh, in the spring, I'm teaching a class at the Harvard Business School called Leadership and Happiness. That I know a lot about. 
you know, because that's what I've been writing about for years and years and years. And fundamentally, what, I, one of the great things about the American democratic capitalist system is that, it, that there are big differences between people in government and people in business, but you can go back and forth because the divides aren't nearly as great as they are most places. You know, the difference between being a CEO and a bureaucrat in China, that's a big difference. Most places around the world, people who are in government, people who are in business, never will interact. The good thing is that leadership has common qualities in our society, and most people who are in, uh, on Capitol Hill today have business experience. And most people who, and yeah, sadly, most people who come out of government go into the lobbying business, but that's a different problem. You know, we, we actually can see people moving between the sectors. And so what I'm going to be talking about are the principles of happiness-based and aspirational leadership no matter where you are. If you want to lead people, what should you do? If you want to be a happy person leading happy people, happier people that have more love, what should you do? And I'm going to be talking about those common experiences. Will there be tension between them? For sure. For sure. And it's interesting because um, I am an economist, but I have been at a policy school in the past, and I've seen that a lot. I see people who have more of a government mentality and people who have more of a business mentality. With a little bit of luck and a couple of prayers, maybe I'll be able to square that circle. I would like to because I believe that leadership is a very, very uh, blessed thing and that people should learn from each other across the sectors. Thank you for that. Thanks. Over here. Hi, I'm Stephanie Vogelzing. I'm from Michigan, and I like your premise, but it takes into account that people like to talk about politics. Uh. What I find when I go back to the Midwest is people talk in their own little groups about what they think, but as soon as they see someone with a different point of view coming up, it suddenly disperses. And I think that's likewise. So instead of what it used to be, all of us talking around a table, it's become kind of an underground, swept under the rug, find people you agree with and go to those bars instead of the other ones. Yeah. So how do we begin to talk to people that are not in D.C. about political things and not have them just say, oh, I don't like politics? Yeah, no, it's a good a point. Now. And, you know, the truth is most people don't like politics. Uh, most people really don't care very much about politics. Only 15% of Americans are actually aware of President Trump's Twitter feed. Uh, but you're in Washington, D.C. You think it's 100% of Americans are following him on Twitter. I mean, he's probably tweeted seven times during the speech, right? And you've all read them already, right? I mean, that's, but, but that's not where mo- most Americans are. That's actually, the, the premise of your question is, is really good news. <laughs> the good news is that most Americans are... I mean, the bad part is the siloing. I'll get to that in a second. But the good news is that most Americans are like trying to get dinner on the table and going to choir practice and going to a soccer game and, and just getting on with life. And, and we live in a country where you don't have to be thinking about politics all the time. Thank God for that, right? I mean, there's so many places around the world where it's like you pay attention to politics because it becomes an existential threat to you. How th- if your party is out of power, there's a knock in the night coming. And we don't have to worry about that. I mean, we've not had to worry about that since the 1860s. It's a really good thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a historically unprecedented thing, as a matter of fact. Now, the problem on the other side that you're talking about is, is not just the, that's the good news. The bad news is that people are extremely polarized because they've been able to silo themselves. They've been able to close themselves off. A big part of that has to do with the way that we interface with technology so that we have a variegation across our media landscape. So that if you want to, you're going to watch news on, ta- on uh, you're going to watch cable television, you'll watch the network that says every single night that scratches your confirmation bias. It says you're right and the other side's stupid. 
you can watch you know cable news networks on exactly the same topic on any given night and and it's just it's worlds apart why because they're catering to consumers and this points out this this overarching truth uh in the in the in a democratic capitalist society which is that leaders are actually followers why? Because they're, they're, they, they respond to demand signals, whether they're democratic demand signals or whether they're market demand signals. And so, therefore, that's why I've written a book not about institutions, about, about the individual heart. Because if you want to, I mean, politicians they, or, or, or cable executives, they see a parade going down the street and they get in front of it because it has to have a leader, <laughs> right, they think. You really want to change something, don't change the leader, change the parade, Right? And that starts with each individual person. Okay, so how do I recommend that people do that? They need to declare their independence from the sources of information. And people are increasing, here's the, the best news for me is that people are recognizing that siloing their information is making them unhappy. They're wondering why they're lonely. They're wondering why they're losing friendships. They're wondering why there's greater anxiety and depression. They're starting to figure it out. I bet some of you have walked away from a big part of your social media just for self defense. It's like, I, I can't. I can't handle this anymore. Rob's going, don't, don't walk away. Don't walk away. No, we, and, and you need to do that. And people are increasingly figuring that out. And so part of my movement is helping people walk away from these counterproductive sources of, these, of information, which are bringing them unhappiness. When you hang out with people and love relationships and you can disagree with respect, it's so profoundly satisfying. I, I, I sometimes work with these guys in this, the debate series, IQ Squared, Intelligence Squared. And you go to these things and, and these events, and they're just, people are just pumped up. I mean, they come in like just hammering tongs against the other side. And there becomes this culture of, yeah, I changed my mind too. It becomes kind of cool to be persuadable. And it is deeply satisfying to the soul to say, I am willing to be persuaded by good arguments. But you have to create the culture of that. And that's what you can do. You can do it in families. You can do it. Certainly, we try to do it inside the American Enterprise Institute. I surround myself with people who, who say, boss, you're wrong. And, and, you know, and that's really what leaders can do. That's one of the great things that leaders can do is to be persuadable and therefore create a culture of persuadability. And as such, we can get beyond that problem. That's a longer-term solution. Thank you, Mr. Brooks. Uh, My name is Caleb Morrison. I work here at Heritage. Do you find that you sometimes have to draw a line between how much you personally desire to be kind and empathetic to people and then how much you know that maybe those same feelings, if policy is based on those, in in the aggregate, they might not lead to effective policy? And if so, how do you draw that line? Give me an example. Uh, Well... Okay, if you look at our recent immigration debate, obviously I can be extremely mm-hmm. empathetic and sad for the plight that these people are having to experience in their own country. But, you know, if if in a, it was a perfect world, I would, you know, obviously let them all into America and we would take care of them. But obviously there are policy problems with that. So how do I balance those two emotions? So in that particular case, and in most of the cases where you're trying to find the line between empathy and policy... It's because we should be thinking not about empathy, but compassion. Compassion is the right standard, not empathy. We have a society that's way, way, way too weighted toward empathy. Go ahead and think about it. You, know, you ever notice that the worst parents, they're empathetic to their teenage kids? Never be empathetic toward teenagers, right? <laughs> you know, it's like if you start feeling their pain, you're in trouble. 
you should always be overwhelmingly compassionate toward all the people involved. Empathy is a deeply overused and lazy thing. I feel your pain. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I will do what's hard. I will do what's right. See, see, love, what I'm talking about here, love is a tough embracing thing. What is love? To love is to will the good of the other as other. That's St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, and with a little bit from Michael Novak. <laughs> to will the good of the other as other. What does that mean? That means taking into account all the parties involved, doing the right thing, doing things that are actually hard, notwithstanding your own feelings, not being a slave to your own feelings. Look, you and I can disagree. I bet we do disagree on immigration policy because I'm an immigration dove personally, right? But that doesn't mean that we can't, that doesn't mean we should try to agree with each other. And I bet you we have the same moral standards for what we're trying to do as society. So you need, Caleb, to be compassionate about this and to be tough-minded about this and to be motivated by love about this. And so do I. And then we need to disagree about the design of the policy. And you shouldn't go to sleep at night thinking that you're actually not motivated by love whether you are or you're not, is not involved in the actual execution of this particular policy. James. Yeah, James Gattuso, Heritage Foundation. Hey. Nice to see you. Hi, James. Uh, I, 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 you had an excellent presentation. Thank you. Um, a lot of the things I've tried to do over my career. Yeah, thank you. I know you have, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, we called it, when I was at Citizens for Sound Economy, uh, blaming the sin and not the sinner. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You, personally, you, you criticize someone's position. Not, 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 not. Absolutely. A person is not their positions. Right. Um, now, a lot of what causes this is a segregation of different ideological points of view. Yeah. Um, or from Michigan. We have, we have the same point of view. Right. In fact, maybe we should have some from, from Brookings on, on this panel. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. Now, it, Brookings was... AI was involved with Brookings for years in right. with the AI Brookings Joint uh, Center on Regulation. Right. I think got through a lot of these. Right. Uh, uh, I, uh, are you know of other institutions in Washington or other institutions that maybe could be founded that, that, that would follow that? Premise. Yeah, for sure. Um, AEI has two big projects we're working on right now. One, on, we've gone back and forth on education policy with the Center for American Progress, and one it's our our joint our joint uh, program on poverty. Our joint uh, um, program. It's a it's actually a project, not a program. Project on poverty policy with Brookings. And the whole point of it is, uh, people need to see our point of view, but they won't it won't have credibility because it won't get to enough people unless other people express their point of view as well. And the best way to do these types of projects, I strongly recommend that Heritage do this. I recommend that everybody with a big point of view do this, because the first thing that you do is to establish the commonality of the moral objective. That is the basis of the American experiment, is the commonality of the moral objective, which is concisely explained by, by life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, around which, which is the nucleus, around which you get the you, you, you have circulating a competition of ideas. And if you can do that, then you can basically say to your interlocutor on the other side of the ideological aisle, I completely agree with your moral premise, and I believe that my policies are a better way to meet your objectives. That is the basis of incredibly productive debate, where you're arguing about who can do a better job of meeting the other one's objectives. If you can set up a debate like that on purpose... 
Let's establish our moral objectives. And every time I talk, I'm going to say, I know what you want, and my way is to get it better. That's how I talk about the minimum wage, by the way. I want work to pay, people to be able to support their families. I mean, that's, I think it's a really good thing. And I want a sustainable economy that will continue to work to pull people out of the margins of our society. The problem is not that the minimum wage has the wrong objective. What I love about the minimum wage, as a case study in this, is that for the first time in a long time, people on that side of the debate have been saying, let's make work pay instead of incentivizing a lack of work, incentivizing idleness. I love, I I have huge affection for proponents of increased minimum wage, the $15 an hour minimum wage, because they want to make work pay for families. The problem is they don't meet their own objective very well because it cuts off the bottom rungs of the ladder. It tends to destroy the jobs for people who are most vulnerable. And I care about the people who are most vulnerable, so I have other policies that I think can get that. And when you talk this way, people are like, blown away. You're not just like a talking head for the Chamber of Commerce? Crazy. That's how we can do it. And so AEI is involved in these things all the time. We should all be, we'll be more effective and, and I dare say, uh, more persuasive and happier. Thank you, James, for your work. This gentleman back here. Hey, uh, thank you very much. Uh, James Singapore, American Association of Christian Schools. Uh, believe profoundly in the principle that you're lining out. However, it occurs to me that um, you also have to embrace a bit of risk in order to take this on. And there does seem to be um, at least a percentage, small percentage of people that are malevolent enough to take, you know, to take your love and, and raise you one, so to speak, and uh, to use um, that sincere overture of trying to agree, trying to find common ground and actually hurt you for it. So how do you differentiate, if there is a way, between um, – an appropriate boundary. You're not calling everyone to martyrdom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so how do you draw an appropriate boundary, differentiate between when sometimes drawing a boundary and not um, maybe expressing everything you think or, or, or feel mm-hmm. to somebody because they're not going to take it in sincerity, use mm-hmm. it against you, so to speak. I appreciate that a lot, uh, very much. And, and one of the things that I do in the book, there are, there are chapters that deal with this expressly. One of the key ways of, that we need to defend ourselves is to be, for example, on social media. Social media is, is such a contempt, um, uh, um, sort of monolithic contempt mechanism today that is very easy to be kind and get destroyed, to kind and get destroyed. It's sort of, the, it's sort of a, a rhetorical or reputational martyrdom that happens all the time. Um, and again, thank God we live in a country where by being nice, we're, it's, this is not the early church. You know, this is not, you know... The authorities are going to show up and drag you away and, 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 and execute you because of the things that you think. You're simply going to have some reputational difficulties. Somebody's going to insult you. Somebody's going to say things that you don't like. So this is small beer compared to real martyrdom in times past. We have to keep that in perspective. <laughs> okay, so I'll talk about fear in a second. But one of the things I talk about on social media, for example, is you will most likely suffer the ill effects that you're talking about when there are anonymous entities. And so what I ask people to do is to commit never to being anonymous under any circumstances, in any forum. No comments after any newspaper articles, never on social media. You never have an avatar. You never have an identity that does not say John Smith, Elm Street, right? And if you want to, put in Our Lady of Sorrows, because your house of worship, for those of you who aren't Catholic, it's because that, I, give your identity, your full identity, your full story. Second, do not deal ever with people who are anonymous. Now, that's not just 
you know, self-defense. It's just it's prudent because when people are anonymous, they have dehumanized themselves purposively. Love is between humans exclusively and always. Love is a phenomenon between humans. And to, to the extent that it's not, it's only because it's between people and God. <laughs> right? So, so if that's the case, when somebody has said, I'm not fully human, you can't deal with them as such. So I, I ask all of you to make the commitment never to be anonymous and never to interact with anybody who is ever anonymous under any circumstances. That will change the rules of the game. Now, your last point is that people are worried about risk. People are over-worried about risk in America today because we haven't, we haven't experienced anything where risk is actually lethal. But we also have a generation of people in their 20s today who objectively are much more worried about risk than people in times past. There's a lot more fear in, among millennials, and I have a lot of data that shows this. So what's the fear? And, and how do I know that? Because they're less likely to date. They're less likely to fall in love. They're, I mean, less, 30% less likely to be in love than people were in the 1980s, people in the 20s and 1980s. And it has everything to do with fear and risk and rejection. It's a generation that's fearful. What is the antidote to fear? St. John the Apostle. (laughs) Love drives out fear. Fear and love are incompatible. Show more love no matter how you feel, and you will feel less fear. The risk will feel less significant. You don't have to protect yourself as much. You're not as worried about your reputation. You go forth in joy. And when you get hammered, when you get a minor martyrdom of a minor part of your reputation, it doesn't matter as much because your heart's burning with the fire of the love. And so that's one of the things I talk about a lot with young people and one of the things I pray about for myself. Thank you for that. One more question. Arla, this is a brilliant talk. Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. Uh, could you give some thoughts on, you know, when we, when I do think about, uh, as a journalist and we call out, we try to unveil true evil that is going on in our society. And I think about the evil of child abuse or the people that are doing these truly diabolical things to other people. And as a Christian, you know, we have to love them too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet I feel contempt for child right. abusers. Right. You know, I, I have, I feel disgust for mm-hmm. these, for people who do things like that. Love I so appreciate the words about turning contempt like you did with the gentleman who sent you that angry message calling you a right-wing fraud, turning that around and just flipping the script and responding in kind. But love doesn't mean just feeling warm fuzzies for people who actually are advocating for and doing evil things to Mm -hmm. people. How can we do that to people who are doing objectively evil things and still maintain this posture. Thank you for that. Uh, Love is never uh, orthogonal to justice. It isn't. Love and justice must be compatible. They just are. You know, in point of fact, you can love people who engage in criminal behavior, but you must punish and you must prevent criminal behavior. My book was written about how decent people can bring America together. Again, this is not a foreign policy book. And yet, if it were, I would not be advocating pacifism. I'm not a Quaker. I mean, I love the Quakers, but I'm not a pacifist I'm, because, you know, I actually think that there is just war and there's a necessity of, of, of overwhelming force in cases around the world and cases even in our own country where people engage in this particular behavior. And if I am motivated by love, I must actually use force against the child abuser because I love the child and I want to stop the abuse, which actually stops the negative sinful behavior of the child abuser. It's, that's the difference between empathy and compassion, right, Caleb? 
That's the difference between empathy and compassion, right there in a nutshell. Love is compassionate more than it's empathetic. That's the distinction that we're making along the lines here. Now, will it soften you? Yes, here's how. Because you always must make the distinction between the person and the activity, the person and the idea, the person and the statement. And that's what, you know what the outrage industrial complex wants to do to you? You know why they're bullies to you? You know, they terrorize you by telling, that, telling you that somebody's ideology is that person. Like, I have teenage kids. Pray for me. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things you never do with teenage kids when they get a D or an F in a class is you never say, you're a terrible student. You always say, you didn't study. <laughs> you know, and, and it's the same thing. You know, when the, when it's unproductive if you're if you're if you're extremely unsupportive of Donald Trump because you believe that he 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 prevaricates, that he says things that are inaccurate or untrue or hyperbolic or he exaggerates serially or whatever, which is what we hear about all the time. And some of you do believe that. Some of you don't, but some of you do. It is unproductive to say that President Trump is a liar. Why? Because that is talking, that is separating a behavior you dislike from the, per, or, or, or conflating the behavior you don't like with the person, which is to say, I will insult and attack that person, precludes the ability of, for you to be persuasive. It makes it impossible that somebody who is watching can do anything except take sides. <laughs> Nobody can be even remotely objective, and you've attenuated your ability to actually be effective in changing the behavior in the first place. That's not what we want to do. That's all that is, is virtue posturing. All that is, is scratching a kind of a dopamine itch. And all that is, is being a slave to our feelings. So that's the, the, the two ways that I'm talking about it. Compassion, not empathy. And talking about behavior, not people. Thank you for that. It's a beautiful question. Are we, fin- David, are we out of time? We can go if you, if you. I am in your hands, my friend. But it, again, this, these people have, you know, jobs. <laughs> What's that? All right, we'll take a few more. I know there were some. I think some people were interested. Yeah. Were See, I, they do want to go back to work. You can tell. All the hands are down. All the hands are down. All right. Okay. Well, I think maybe we we wrap it up. Check it out now. So, all right. Well, look. Um, for those of you who would like to buy the book, uh, there's plenty of copies outside. I think. If not, you'll have to resort to Amazon. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, Dr. Brooks can stay and sign a few uh, for a few minutes. Delighted. And then uh, this concludes our event. Thank you. Thank you, David. Oh.